Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. And we're about to embark on RV number... <laughs> Can you insert that yeah. in post-production? Yes. <laughs> have we hit 20? 20. 2-0. Um, for those who have come in late, or actually those who have forgotten, because it's been a while since we've done an RV, what is an RV, Tim? It's a rendezvous. It's a location of consolidation. Mm. And in our version of the RV... We reflect on previous episodes, dissect them a little bit, and mm. pull out some interesting tidbits to share with you. And I think also in our version, if we're honest with ourselves, it's been a bit of a filler between <laughs> guests, but we've had such good guests that we haven't managed to get an RV in for a bunch of weeks. I think 10 or 11 guests since we've done an RV. Mm. So... If you're expecting another excellent guest, too bad. It's just Tim and I. But Mm -hmm. we will be reflecting on some of the excellent guests that we have had over that last gusting three months. Yeah, it's been fantastic. And what we thought we'd do is group them thematically. We've spoken with a number of really world-leading experts on this very complex, very tricky topic of raising kids Mm -hmm. and sort of dealing with issues related to parenting and childhood. Mm, And no one has got that code cracked. Even in our own houses, I can't crack the code of my little three terrorists. Yep, nor I. Um, But someone who's coming close, I reckon, is Steve Biddulph, who we had the absolute honour and pleasure of speaking with a number of weeks ago. Yeah, he was absolutely wonderful, a beautiful human being, one whose books changed my relationships with certainly my father and my brother and my son and those three relationships with each other as well. Mm. And it was just super, super to get him on the show. It was incredible. And he was, you said, a remarkable human being, absolute gentleman. He was so generous with his time and his candor. And I know that he's covered very similar topics to what we spoke about numerous times before. Innumerous. Mm. Is that a word? Mm-hmm. Bunch. Um, and yet he still approached it with such generosity of spirit, such energy. Um, he gave of himself throughout that discussion. It was mind-blowing. Uh, let's talk about raising girls because... People usually firstly associate Steve Bidolf with the Raising Boys series Mm -hmm. and included in that is manhood. But let's deal with girls first. You've incorporated a few things from him in your house. (laughs) I'm definitely trying to. Certainly one of the big things that I've incorporated from um, Steve Bidolf's books, and, and we touched on it in the conversation, and it actually links with another of our guests more recently, but is this idea of screen time and this idea of being able to deal with screens, social media, connectivity, and this uh, really unprecedented uh, challenge and opportunity that the internet and social media presents uh, young teenagers. And I do like Steve's philosophy of of no unsupervised screen time for, for adolescents, no sort of devices in bedrooms. And limits placed on it. And we have incorporated that in our house. Um, We have certainly received our fair share of pushback. 
but it is funny, as both Steve and Dave Gillespie spoke about, uh, you get that angst, you get that, I hate you, Dad, and then half an hour later it's like, mm, parents suck, let's go kick a footy, which is kind mm. of our little evil plot all to, to start with, get them out, get them engaging and, and doing some human-to-human relationship building. It's amazing what else they do that's super interesting, engaging and wholesome when they don't have their screens. We recently went away and my two daughters discovered crosswords and sudoku and i'd forgotten how much fun it is collectively to do Mm. a crossword Mm. it was beautiful i mean they had the grandparents there and you know their parents and it was super super fun sitting down after dinner and just you know talking about crosswords it's very cool I love, and um, Steve spoke about it in our discussion, but I love the fact that no one, as you mentioned right at the start, no one knows what they're doing as as parents, I don't think. No manuals. No manuals. And I love the fact that Steve came to it through his own situation where he's diagnosed with Asperger's and he looks at sort of a very, uh, I guess, theoretical-based way of interacting with humans. And and so right at the start, he thought, I'll study psychology so I can talk to girls um, and then decide I'll study parenting because I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to engage with my children. And then he realized that through his study, he developed a knowledge which I think he assumed everyone else had, but everyone else was thirsting for and, and he's become a world expert as a result. Yeah. And for boys, he talks about these zones of seven years, you know, zero to seven, the boy is very much all about mum. Seven to 14, they turn their attention to dad. And 14 to 21, they turn their attention away from mum and dad and are looking for other mentors and being able to fill those periods in time in a boy's life with value from mum, value from dad and teachings and learnings and educations, but then also value from mentors rather than allowing them to find their own mentors. That's super, I think, super important. Without a doubt. And um, and I guess the other one we talk a little bit about was the rite of passage, and we'll cross over to Rick Pedley-Smith for boys. <laughs> Steve, I thought you were setting that up for a beautiful segue into Rick Pedley-Smith because that, oh. that's exactly what he provides, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. Well, I kind of didn't want to leave... Didn't want to leave uh, Steve bit off too early. Um, But for boys, you have been incorporating one of his suggestions, which is have your son cook a meal. Yeah. As young as six. Which, and correct me if I'm wrong, that was Steve reflecting on... Uh, Celia Lashley. That was him reflecting on Celia Lashley's advice, who had seen a lot of... Good boys, unfortunately, make bad decisions and go to jails in New Zealand. And reflecting that this idea of creating some responsibility, um, we, I think, universally, different cultures do it more, but tend to pander to children and, and boys maybe in particular, and a little bit of learned helplessness there. But giving the responsibility to do something like cooking a meal, looking after themselves, not taking the the school bag in or the school lunch in every time they forget and, and getting them to, to develop that independence. And so, yes, we've we've eaten very well as a result of um, getting our little boy to, to try his hand in the kitchen. Oh, and how's this for an idea? In that second seven-year window from seven to 14 when boys are all about dad, that little interaction in the kitchen's a fantastic time for mum.
Rite of Passage with Rick Pedley-Smith. So we're right in that zone of, of sort of adolescence. And Rick has done just incredibly selfless work in this space. So Rick's teacher um, spent time in the UK, in London, in a, a school with... I mean, it's it's probably not too harsh to say some pretty hopeless cases. These kids who have just had absolutely terrible upbringings, lack of opportunity, cycles, intergenerational cycles of sort of violence and hopelessness and and bleak futures. And on the basis of that, decides that he wants to do something for troubled boys uh, in terms of providing exactly what you mentioned before, Tim, that non-parental role model. And by the way, many of these children don't have strong male parental role models. The the men in their lives are often absent or probably not ideal role models. And Rick has stepped in through his Rite of Passage program to provide an alternative view of what right can look like as a male. Also didn't have a manual for this. He is a physical education teacher and so used that physical vector. He mm. saw boys in particular in his PE classes becoming more engaged than perhaps they had been in an English class, a maths class, or a science class. And so he started there, didn't he? Yeah. But he also embraced some other aspects to it, um, you know, the sort of the use of objects or... Artifacts. Artifacts, that's right. So dog tags and caps and T-shirts. Uh, the charitable aspect, mm-hmm. he requires the boys to make a commitment to charity and also a commitment to their schoolwork to improve their school results, to mm-hmm. be part of the program. And then also harking back a little bit to Steve Bidolf's 14-year-plus window, he's brought in people who he believes can inspire those kids, including people that we know, yeah. Keith Fennell, who wrote Warrior Brothers, a former SAS colleague of ours, and Mark Donaldson, VC, uh, as well as the widow of a guy who used to be one of my soldiers, a guy by the name of Pete Cafe, who sadly took his own life. Um, amazing stuff from Rick Pedley-Smith. Two other things I found really impressive with, I mean, Rick's an amazing human as well, um, but with him and his program, the first is this real focus on not developing a toxic masculinity. What passes as masculinity in many corners of contemporary society and certainly is promoted in many parts of social media is not what true masculinity is about and he's really brought out this idea that it's it's okay to be male but that doesn't mean you're you know super ripped and buffed and beating up the the next person and the other thing which is very close to our hearts is the focus on poetry Mm. and just some of that beauty that timeless messages that can be captured so well in verse and um, I, I love that idea of exposing people who may not otherwise have come across, you know, these incredible poems like If, poems like um, Invictus, these kind of, uh, I think, really inspirational philosophies for life in general, but mm. for life as a man as well. In yeah, and, and we remember as young teenagers in early high school going to English class and reading Shakespeare and thinking, what's this sissy rubbish? But when you take it out of that environment and put it into a program like Rick's, Rick's Rite of Passage program, it takes a different dimension. You take the more wholesome meaning from those poems that really are designed to inspire us and guide us. I know you're waiting for me I know 
So going from timeless, centuries-old poetry through to a contemporary challenge for adolescents around the world, we spoke with the author of the book Teen Brain. What is Teen Brain about, Tim? Mm, Written by David Gillespie. It's about the peculiar nature of a teenager's brain, which is not fully developed until the age of 25. Mm. And we're assuming that in our little teenager's brains, they're the same as ours, that they can do things that we can do. They have self-discipline like we have self-discipline. They see value in the same way that we do. However, comma, they do not. And I found the neuroscience of this fascinating. I am going to completely butcher it, but he does focus on some of the the hormonal changes. Um, essentially, he says that the breaks in teenagers' brains are taking off, taken off. Uh, the mechanism called GABA, which uh, sort of inhibits hormonal responses, is taken off to allow uh, people to turn into adults. But in the process, some of our pathways within our brains are also let wild, and in particular. Things like the motivational pathways mm. that are sponsored by, uh, that are promoted by dopamine, mm-hmm. and they manifest in really interesting ways. The boys will seek what David Gillespie calls danger porn. So these things that simulate risk-taking behaviour and give that sort of testosterone-based rush and, and fulfilment. And girls will often feel uh, things like connection porn. You know, these things that simulate. Uh, the the connectivity um, and promote an oxytocin fix. And social media has recognised and capitalised on both of these through avenues like gaming and uh, gambling in Mm -hmm. the the danger porn side of things and through social media and likes uh, in the, the sort of connectivity, the social side of it, which is pretty scary. Actually, it's called the reward pathway, Ben, but yeah, not, not a bad effort from you. Hmm. But, uh, you know, you talked the other day about, you know, bringing bullies into your bedroom and that whole idea is terrifying. But that's what happens now on these social media platforms. There's an incredible inability for us to supervise. You know, we look at our kids on tablets and telephones and I have actually disciplined my youngest child only to find out that they're doing schoolwork on tablets <laughs> yeah. and accessing uh, research on telephones. And so where does that start and finish and how can you possibly supervise it? That That's the big challenge that David Gillespie addresses in Team Brain. And he uses, he addresses that um complex paradox in in by citing that you know the the teenagers are facing one of the most dangerous drugs available uh, through the internet but the pusher is the school the headmaster and and so we've got this this weird kind of opportunity mixed with threat because let's not forget and and David highlighted this as well the incredible uh, benefits that access to the internet provides our children I mean they have quite literally, humankind's knowledge at their their fingertips in a way that that we never did. And it's amazing. They're so much more worldly. They're so much uh, better prepared to access information and to find things out. So it's it's a good thing. We're we're not saying this is universally bad, but Mm. we need to temper uh, their interactions in this environment, particularly up to that 25 years of age before Mm. our brains are fully functional. And David's earlier book, one of his earlier books was on sugar. I mean, is social media... The new sugar. Mm. Same sort of pathways, same sort of reward mechanisms, same sort of uh, commercial drive to 
overemphasize this in our lives with really negative health outcomes across I mean, the board. our neurological response sounds quite similar, doesn't it? Yeah. Whether we're consuming sugar or looking at, you know, how many likes we got on social media. Yep. And maybe a little tool from Steve Bidolf is get everyone in the family to put down those devices at 7 p.m. or 6 p.m. Mm. and spend time together offline. One of the the really interesting parallels I found in our discussion with David harks back to our chat with uh, Dr. Linda Monchizade, who spoke about selfie dysmorphia. And Mm. so in addition to the potential of inviting a bully into your bedroom, what we're also doing in this point is comparing ourselves often to idealised versions, not only of people's looks, but also of their lifestyles. I mean, it's that cliched saying that, you know, what you post on Instagram or what you see on someone's Instagram page is the best day in, in their life or a series of them. And you're comparing that to your everyday. And it, it creates that um, false expectation about, you know, yourself, your life, your success, your looks, uh, which is really quite damaging. Have you seen the documentary The Social Dilemma? Tim, I told you to watch The Social <laughs> Dilemma. As I said, it's my and idea. In fact, I opened that episode by saying I had just watched The Social Dilemma. So yes, yes, as, I as you know, I do not listen to you. But there's a line out of The Social Dilemma that I quite like, and I'm going to paraphrase it. I won't get it particularly all perfect. They say, if you're getting something for free and you're not sure what the commodity is, then you're the commodity. And that is social media to a T. I reckon if you haven't seen Social Dilemma on Netflix, so we've just said peel yourself away from your screens. Have you seen it? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, pretty well constructed um, and some some interesting little scenes in it where you've got the the three people in social media headquarters vying for the teenager's attention and turning up different uh, sort of stimulus and inserting Mm. different... um, uh, sort of images and suggestions on on this guy's social media feed. Pretty pretty powerful way of conveying what the algorithms are doing. Yeah, and and you know I know you you sort of slightly joke in putting the screen down and then picking up the screen, but if you watch it with your teenage children, they'll take some real value out of that in understanding, which is what are the drivers behind these social media organisations that are trying to use us. They're not really trying to create value in our life. They're trying mm-hmm. to create value in their financial world. And gee, it it makes you aware, doesn't it, when you are looking at a feed and you just want to flick oh, that yeah. next one, just that next little picture, just that, oh, and that's something I'm interested in. And and then when you realise that, no kidding, that's something you're interested in, that's not an accident, um, You it harks back to your point. You are very aware that you are the commodity and that these things are, are totally geared to keep your eyeballs on that screen. I've stolen some Ryan Holiday on this, the alive time, dead time. I, I love that principle. And every time I find myself wanting to scroll through social media or open that app and just check something, I ask myself, is this a lifetime? Yeah. Is it really creating value in my world? Is it improving me as a human being? Or is it dead time? Is it just, you know, me breathing through something that is zero value creation. And I think just that awareness, just that understanding, it's a pretty powerful first step that Mm. um, we can take towards maybe getting a bit more balance and and using this as a tool, not being the commodity that you spoke about. Get more alive time in your day Mm. than dead time. (laughs) 
And to finish off our theme about childhood, the perils and the, the vulnerabilities, we also spoke with Mark Mexham, who um, I, I found a really, uh, I guess, difficult conversation in terms of the content. But Mark, um, as a 14-year-old, was raped by two men in positions of authority, two men that he trusted in an environment uh, that he thought was safe. He harboured that secret for a number of different reasons for 22 years Mm. and has recently um, gone loud. He's come out uh, with that story um, and created an organisation called Community Courage to encourage people to do the same thing. We've had a few difficult episodes where we've had challenging conversations with guests, Mm. but that one I was a little paralysed on how to start it. If you listen to the very start of the episode, yeah. I think we kind of threw to Mark and said, however you want to start, that's good good for us. And I think that speaks to the difficulty yeah. of how he had harboured this for 22 years. He wanted to tell his dad, but the way he processed that in his teen brain yep. was that if I tell dad, dad's going to get angry. He's going to go out and hurt these people or worse, and that'll mean my brother grows up without a dad, and I can't have that. Mm. And I think Mark's journey himself, when he when he decided to, to um, go public with his story and uh, do that sort of self-investigative a bit about you know tracking down the the perpetrators, one of whom was dead, but another who was alive and seemingly uh, continuing to do similar behaviours, and then his own journey through this, uh, I guess, retribution, revenge uh, type intent, uh, to the realisation that that would not stop this cycle, that that he needed to address it in a different way. I thought just an, an amazingly um, honest. A discussion about the the path he went through in in terms of that aspect of his story. You know, we talk about anger being a dumb emotion, but it is actually quite a good energy, and he's channeled that energy into an area where he feels he can create real purpose and meaning and support in other people's lives, and that is community courage. He's got a a vlog, a vlog on Instagram where he tells little parts of the story and the Community Courage platform is well worth also taking a look. You'll find a link to that on his Instagram page. Ben, before we close out RV20, let's do some listener questions and feedback. You got any questions? Yeah, I've got a good one, actually. Go. Uh... (laughs) It's a cracker. From Skeff Daddy. Hi, guys. Wondering if I could ask a couple of questions. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Skeff Daddy, you can ask as many questions as you like. Reach out to us on debrief at unforgiving60.com. You'll also find us on Instagram, Facebook. Actually, we've got a TikTok account. Um, uh, yeah. 
have not used it. <laughs> but yes, anywhere you can find us on social media or directly at debrief at unforgiving60.com, you can ask whatever questions you like. And please do. We have been getting some great feedback on the Rick Pedley Smith um, uh, episode, which we spoke about in this RV. Um, one that was was actually a really cool note and a, and a great follow-up was from Adam, um, who highlighted his uh, affiliation, his work with um, a similar organisation called Boys to the Bush. And Adam um, sort of drew our attention to that. Um, and uh, he's the, the co-founder and general manager of Boys to the Bush, in many ways doing very similar things to uh, Rick P.S., albeit in a, a rural sort of environment, taking a disadvantaged youth out scrub, giving them some good uh, experiences, some good skills, um, and some good exposure to... Some pretty hard work from the looks of things, mm. but uh, in the process, really exposing them to good men and um, you know some some really positive role models. So, Adam, thank you very much for reaching out, and we've put Adam and Rick in touch, uh, and they've they've been chatting, and certainly hope that that um, something comes of that. If nothing else, just a, a sharing of ideas on on how to do a very good job, even better. A good common purpose. And speaking of Rick Pedley Smith, Rick um, flicked us or put us in contact with a guy called Nick Calamaris. Now, Nick is an alum, a graduate of the um, Rite of Passage program. And in addition to that, he is a spectacularly talented young man. He apparently is able to run a sort of gusting state record time 400 metres in tracksuits and um, Converse shoes. Uh, but he's also an outstanding musician, and Nick has been kind enough to allow us to use some of his music. That's the music you've been listening to on this episode and that we'll close out uh, this particular RV with. And we'll also include in the show notes um, some links to Nick's socials. Um, so get on board, have a listen to Nick's stuff. It's out of control. Feedback from Ryan on our Instagram account mm-hmm. at unforgiving six zero. G'day guys, just wanted to say hi, have been listening to your show since the beginning of the year and it's had a big impact on not only my personal life but work as well. Never thought I'd be a fan of poetry, but If, that is the poem If by Rudyard Kipling, has been like finding the formula to most issues in life. So thank you. I listened to your episode with David Olney and and it had some interesting stuff in it. I've started a new role in a new business and have moved to a management position and have learned a lot. And the message goes on. Fantastic. He's making a good go at the opportunity and and thanks in advance. Thank you, Ben, for co-hosting this podcast. That's just in my gratitude journal for the day. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you, Tim, and thank you very much for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Unforgiving 60. Thanks for listening. Cheers. you